Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Hello, I'm Marina Yevshan, co-host of the Russia-Ukraine War Report podcast, and today is January the 23rd, 2024. It's been 3,649 days since Russia's illegal occupation of Crimea on January 27, 2014, and one year and 11 months since Russia expanded its war of aggression against Ukraine. Today's podcast looks at events that happened yesterday. During the podcast, you will find the Russia-Ukraine war map helpful to visualize the areas discussed. There is a link in the podcast description. The Russia-Ukraine war report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from our direct contacts and journalists in Ukraine, the Russian Ministry of Defense and the Ukrainian General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine Morning Reports, Operational Commands North, South and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geospatial experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mail bloggers and social media channels with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission – the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with the daily assessment. There are no changes from yesterday, so if you skip ahead, you won't hurt my feelings, because I won't even know. 1. While a full assessment would require an in-person investigation, we maintain the available evidence indicates that Russian forces likely committed the attack on the Kirovsky district of occupied Donetsk, that killed 28 and wounded 30. This is the last day of the century. 2. We maintain it is unlikely that the United States will provide additional military or financial aid to Ukraine in 2024. 3. The continued impasse in the United States Congress to provide additional military aid to Ukraine and the passive response to Russian kinetic and hybrid aggression is contributing to Russia's expanding access with North Korea and Iran and global hybrid warfare. 4. We maintain the armed forces of Ukraine are facing critical ammunition shortages that are directly impacting the ability to maintain existing defensive lines. 5. We maintain that Ukrainian forces no longer have the combat potential to engage in any offensive operations, and Russian troops are capable of additional tactical success and achieving limited operational goals. 6. The reduction in Ukrainian combat potential is a direct result of blocked aid from the United States and the European Union. 7. Russian forces have established an operational objective to capture Chasiv Yar, west of Bakhmut. 8. Russian commanders have put mission objectives over all other considerations and are committed to capturing the Avdiivka salient, regardless of the cost, and are maintaining a force of at least 40,000 troops. 9. We maintain that combat that closely resembles World War I trench warfare versus 21st-century combined arms maneuver warfare will continue through meteorological winter, which ends on February the 29th. 10. 
While the possibility of an intentional nuclear accident caused by Russian occupiers at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant remains low, in our assessment the threat to Europe is not being taken seriously. We are extremely troubled by the last report from the International Atomic Energy Agency and the increasing resistance from Russian occupiers to cooperate with the United Nations Organization. We begin in Kharkiv Oblast, in the Kupiansk area of operation, OIO. Mutual fighting continued north and west of Sinkivka, with no change in the situation. Russian mercenary mail-blogger War Gonzo reported fighting continued in the area of Pershotravneva. The city of Kharkiv was attacked twice by Russian missiles over a three-hour period. S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used for a ground attack or North Korean-sourced KN-23 short-range ballistic missiles hit the center of residential neighborhoods, causing major damage to 30 high-rise apartments and at least one medical facility. Three are confirmed dead and another 42 wounded, including four children. Search and rescue operations are still ongoing. In the Svatovyo in Luhansk oblast, the Russian Ministry of Defense, or ARMOD, claimed Ukrainian forces were on the offensive near Novoyehorivka, and mutual fighting was reported in the area of Novovodene, northeast of Makiivka. West of Kremina, significant fighting continued east of Terny and Yampolivka, with no change in the situation. Ukrainian sources reported continued fighting in the Serebrensky woods, with both combatants trading defensive positions during intense positional fighting. In the Lysychanskyo, Russian troops supported by the Aerospace Forces, or VKS, continued to suffer catastrophic losses north of Bilohorivka, attempting to advance along the same routes from the bend in the Siversky Donets River. Next, let's talk about the Donbass. In the Siversky Ukrainian source Deep State reported that Russian troops were attempting to advance from Bilohorivka, that's the one in Donetsk Oblast, and Berestove in the direction of Vyimka. In the Bakhmutyo, fighting continued on the northern edge of Bogdanivka, where Russian forces have been unable to consolidate past gains. Despite close air support from the VKS, Russian troops remained unable to advance. It was a similar situation near Hromove, where heavy fighting was reported. In the Klishivka AO, mutual positional fighting was ongoing northwest of Klishivka and east of Andreevka. The Russian VKS conducted airstrikes on Ukrainian positions along the entire length of the line of the conflict in the AO. In the Toresk New York AO, Armod has reported fighting in the Shume area, on the northwestern edge of Horlivka, for three days in a row, with no other sources supporting the claim. In southwestern Donetsk, the tactical gains made by Russian forces on the southern flank of the Avdiivka AO were likely overstated. After pushing Ukrainian defenses to the breaking point, inexplicably the intensity of Russian attacks dropped dramatically. Fighting along the railroad grade east of Stepove continued, but became positional in nature. It was a similar situation northeast of the Avdiivka coke plant. On the southern flank of Avdiivka, reports that Ukrainian forces were pushed out of the Soviet-era Zenith air defense complex were false, as were earlier reports of Russian troops advancing past the industrial district in southeastern Avdiivka. 
While there was geolocated visual confirmation that Russian troops had advanced into southern Avdiivka, they were unable to consolidate their gains. Based on new information, we moved the line of conflict and gray area further south. Additionally, new videos showed fighting continued in the area of the Tsarskohota resort on Soborna Street, indicating that Russian forces have not gained control of the compound. Based on the information about Tsarskohota and Zenit, we made additional changes to the line of conflict and reduced the gray area on the war map. Further west, on the southern flank, Russian troops continued their attacks in the areas of Pervomaiske and Nevelske. In the Marinka AO, Russian forces continued their attacks east of Georgievka with no change in the situation. In the Vogledar AO, Russian troops continued their attacks on Novomikhailovka, attempting to approach from the south without success. In the Staromlinivka AO, Russian forces continued to attack Staromayorske from the west with no change in the situation. Russian mercenary mail-blogger Wargonzo claimed that Ukraine launched a surprise counterattack from Urozhaine and was able to secure new positions in Zavitne Bajanya without evidence. Power, cellular service, water, sewer, hot water and heat were still out for tens of thousands of homes in occupied Donetsk after Ukrainian drones struck electrical substations and infrastructure. Yesterday I reported that a fuel depot may have been hit in the Kirovsky district of Donetsk, based on photos and videos available at that time. Our analysts have since learned the fire was from the electrical substation adjacent to the facility. In occupied Makiivka, Ukrainian insurgents placed large blue-yellow flags on the Tarakans in honor of the Day of the Unity of Ukraine. On January 22, 1919, the Ukrainian People's Republic and the Western Ukrainian People's Republic were unified into one nation. You might be surprised, but Ukrainian statehood roots go way deeper than 1991, and what we are experiencing now is not the first Russian war against the very existence of our nation. In fact, a hundred years ago, in our fight for independence, we lost, drowned in blood by Russia. We hope this time we win and call it the last Russian war. For our subscribers who are not familiar with Ukrainian history but want to know more, let me suggest a couple of useful sources. If you are seeking general understanding of the history of Ukraine, the best option for you will be watching a series of Yale lectures The Making of Modern Ukraine by Professor Timothy Snyder. They are free and available on YouTube. For those who are ready to commit their time to more profound research, I would like to recommend two books by Ukrainian historians. Both are available in English. Serhii Pluhi, The Gates of Europe, A History of Ukraine, and Oleksandr Pali, A History of Ukraine, A Short Course. In Zaporizhia, fighting was described as skirmishes in the Urihivayo. Light fighting continued west of Verbove and west and south of Robotina. In occupied Melitopol, a Russian soldier stopped a newer Mercedes-Benz at a checkpoint to review the travel documents of the occupants. The commander of the Chechen Vostok Ahmad battalion, Vacha Hambulatov, was driving the car with other members of his unit. The orders did not have an end date, and when the soldier asked what the date was, Hambulatov replied, quote, indefinite. The soldier told the Chechens, quote, a permanent order is considered invalid, with Hambulatov angrily replying, quote, I don't give a damn what you think, I'm the battalion commander, the regiment commander gave me everything. 
At that point, the Russian soldier took one step back and chambered around in his machine gun. Hambulatov jumped out of the car with a cocked pistol, and the other occupants got out and drew their guns. The Russian soldier was beaten, with the Chechens driving off. We link to the whole incident, which was recorded on a body cam in our situation report. There is more information in the podcast description. In occupied Crimea, the Crimean bridge was closed for part of the day for unknown reasons. In Yevpatoria, Crimean Tatar insurgent organization Atesh published pictures and videos of staged Russian equipment at the railroad station. Outbound equipment included heavily damaged tanks and armored vehicles that will require extensive refurbishing or will be cannibalized for parts. Incoming equipment was dozens of Cold War-era T-62 medium-duty tanks and Bram-1 armored recovery vehicles. In Sevastopol, water remains unavailable for the fifth day, reportedly due to sediment contamination in the groundwater. Schools are closed and work hours have been reduced to a half-day due to a lack of drinking and technical water. Russian officials reported service would be restored by Wednesday night, with local public works employees saying service will be out for at least another week and wouldn't be restored until it stops raining. In Kyiv, almost two dozen missiles attacked the city on January 22nd and 23rd, with missile debris landing in the Solomyansky, Svetoshinsky, Pechersky and Darnitsky districts. In Solomyansky district, a Russian missile that was intercepted by air defense broke up at low altitude, striking a residential and commercial area. The warhead did not detonate, but burning debris and fuel caused significant damage to area buildings. Buildings were damaged in Svetoshinsky and Pachersky districts, and the school grounds of a kindergarten had debris fall in the Darnitsky district. Across Kyiv, one person is reportedly brain-dead, and 18 people were wounded, with 13 in hospital. Here is the update for the Russian front. In the Belgorod region, a Fab 250 UMPK glide bomb fell off a Russian airplane. Again and struck a dam near the village of Ionovka. There weren't any casualties, but the blast damaged the dam. Yesterday's drone strike on the Ust-Luga oil terminal in the Leningrad region caused major damage to the facility. Two drones hit critical infrastructure that will leave the gas condensate plant and shipping terminal offline for weeks. Currently, 15-20% to 20% of Russian oil experts move through Ust-Luga. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. 
behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Finally, let's talk about theater-wide events. It was another extremely busy news day. After a surge of Russian ground attacks that peaked last week at over 120 a day, the number of daily combat clashes has dropped by half, with 63 clashes reported on January 22. On January 22 and 23, Russia attacked Ukraine with 41 missiles, including S-300 or North Korean KN-23 missiles, KH-101 or KH-55-555 subsonic cruise missiles, KH-22 supersonic anti-ship cruise missiles, Iskander-M short-range ballistic missiles, and KH-59 guided air-to-surface missiles. Ukrainian air defenses shot down all of the KH-101 and KH-55-555 missiles, five Iskander-M and one KH-59. The Air Force noted that not all of the Iskander-M and KH-22 missiles reached their targets. Ukrainian military analyst Oleksandr Kovalenko reported that so far in January Russia has used approximately 600 glide bombs, slightly fewer than the previous two months. It was unknown if that included the ones that randomly fall off of Russian planes. The war in Ukraine has undermined Russia's faith in conventional weapons and increased the importance of tactical nuclear weapons, according to a report by the International Institute for Strategic Studies. William Alberg believes that Moscow has started to view non-strategic nuclear weapons as a more effective means of deterring and defeating NATO in a future conflict. This is a significant shift in power dynamics. During the First Cold War, the NATO alliance considered tactical nuclear bombs as a pillar of deterrence against a Soviet-led ground attack on Western Europe. Alberg warned that Russia could cross the metaphorical red line if Moscow believes the West is too politically weak to respond proportionally to a nuclear attack and does not consider the United States arsenal as a serious threat. The Institute does not believe that Russia could launch an undetected attack, with Western surveillance capable of observing preparatory measures to prepare a tactical nuclear strike on Ukraine or a NATO nation. Speaking at the United Nations, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said that Moscow has never refused to negotiate to achieve a peaceful solution to end the Russia-Ukraine war. Lavrov, always the comedian, added that Moscow refuses to negotiate with President Volodymyr Zelensky or current government officials, which raises the question, who would Russia negotiate with? In 2023, over 60% of Ukraine's state budget went to military spending, according to an internal report. The Turkish parliament is scheduled to open debate on the accession of Sweden to the NATO alliance, with a vote expected as soon as January 24. Turkey and Hungary remain the final two nations to approve Sweden's membership. The European Commission for Internal Trade and Services, Thierry Breton, said that by the end of 2024 the EU will be able to produce 1.3 million artillery shells per year, with most stated to be provided to Ukraine. He was also optimistic that the economic bloc would be able to finally deliver up to 650,000 delayed artillery shells, 
originally promised for 2023, by April 2024. Multiple sources reported that Hungary and Slovakia will not interfere with the EU decision to allocate 50 billion euros of financial aid for Ukraine, which could be approved as early as February 1. Orban's climb to power in the right-wing isolationist movement in Europe has reportedly been blunted due to his anti-Ukrainian stance, which has reached the point of causing political damage. The EU also announced that it was creating an additional fund of 20 billion euros to provide direct military aid to Ukraine from 2024 to 2027, including 5 billion euros in 2024. This is in addition to the 50 billion in financial aid and is additive to the support pledged by individual nations. But wait, there's more. The High Representative of the Union for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy of the EU, Josep Borrell, announced that all 27 member nations of the economic bloc have agreed that the profits and interest earned by frozen Russian assets should be transferred to Ukraine. Conservatively, Ukraine could be provided with another 8 to 12 billion euros a year. During a visit to Kyiv, President of Poland Andrzej Duda said that aid to Ukraine should not only be continued, but increased. During his visit, President Zelensky announced that a new defense package had been agreed to with Poland, and the two countries, enjoying rapidly sowing relations, are discussing joint weapons production. Duda appeared to take a swipe at the United States and congressional leadership during his statements. While he believes that Europe can increase its support, only the adoption by the US Congress of additional funding for Ukraine will help achieve victory. He went on to say that the investment now would, quote, avoid a bigger war and the need for the involvement of the US military in it. Prime Minister of Poland Donald Tusk announced that his nation has agreed to join the G7 nation statement of security guarantees for Ukraine. Belgium announced it was committing 611 million euros of military aid to Ukraine in 2024, and Lithuania announced another military aid package, which will include armored vehicles, ammunition and anti-drone technology. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz continues to face internal pressure to provide Ukraine with Taurus cruise missiles, which are similar to the British Storm Shadow and the French Scalp. MBDA Deutschland's head of Taurus Systems, Joachim Knopf, said that his company was capable of quickly replenishing the supply of the German cruise missiles by restarting production. The Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine, Dmitro Kuleba, reported that Ukrainian pilots were operating F-16 fighters with instructors and moving closer to being ready for deployment. Ukrainian Air Force's spokesperson, Colonel Yuri Ignat, confirmed the report but refused to provide additional details due to operational security. During a White House press briefing, the coordinator for strategic communications at the National Security Council, John Kirby, once again appealed for Congress to approve military aid for Ukraine as soon as possible, saying that, quote, the next few months will be critical. For the 55% of the audience outside of North America, the U.S. House of Representatives is on recess this entire week because I really can't explain why. House Speaker Mike Johnson scheduled it that way. The Rammstein Working Group will meet on January the 23rd, with U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin attending virtually from home as he recovers from prostate cancer treatment. And that's what we know. Your support of my home, Ukraine, helps us make history and protect the future for all. 
You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.